Well, good morning. We've got a very special day and a special treat. We're very privileged to have Dr. John Marshall and his wife Ruthie with us today. And they're dear friends of mine. We've known each other for many years. Dr. Marshall was the senior pastor of Second Baptist Church in Springfield, Missouri for 22 years. Under his leadership, the church averaged about 2,700 in attendance on Sunday morning. They began 57 new churches under his leadership. They averaged about 1,000 people on mission every year, locally and around the world going out. As Pastor Kevin earlier acknowledged those in our church who were doing that. Uh, They've just had a tremendous uh, time of ministry uh, there, but he's retired now from that call of duty, and the Lord has now called him to be the North American Mission Board Ambassador for the state of Missouri. We as Southern Baptists have a missions agency for what we do in America and and North America, Canada, and then we have what's called the International Mission Board. Those are missionaries serving other places around the world. But John helps represent those in Missouri, and uh, for years we've stayed in touch. But really the last three or four years, I guess, we've, we've uh, I guess, engaged three or four times a month. We talk to each other, and uh, he's a very faithful prayer warrior for me. He's been a great encouragement to me. He's a mentor. He's really the patriarch of Southern Baptist pastors in our state uh, and really all across our nation. Uh, and we're so happy to have them here. They are from this area. John graduated from Cape Central High School. Ruthie from Chaffee High School. I was corrected this morning about that. I thought it was in Cape, but at Chaffee, yes, she's a red devil. And so we'll watch out about that. I'll let you explain that. But, um, but we're so delighted to have them here. And uh, you're going to be blessed. The first hour was a tremendous message and no doubt the same. So uh, with that, let's welcome Dr. John Marshall and his wife, Ruthie. Thank you, Mark. It's good to be back home. My daddy was pastor at Southside Baptist Church here in town from 1960 to 1972. I went to May Green School. I went to junior high, Central, got a degree in math from uh, CMO. And then while I was here, met and married my wife of 52 years, Ruthie. Uh, I thought she was an angel. She was a red devil. But anyway, that's, that's, that's pretty. That's a school team, in case you're wondering. Yeah, in case you're wondering. That's a good, that's a good point. Yeah, that's, that's a school team. Would you go to, to Matthew chapter 28, verse 18? Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. It's such a pleasure and honor to be with you again, to be with Mark and Karen and back here at Linwood. You did bless my wife's parents. Emerson and Velma Huey were members here. We buried him here. Mark buried him, blessed us. Your church blessed us during those days. So thank you, Linwood, for what you've meant to us. Let me tell you how long ago it's been since I lived here. I remember when this church was Third Baptist. Some of you didn't even know that was your original name, did you? Yeah, I remember. That is true. I remember... There was a group of men and women who came to Southside one day and visited my daddy. And they talked about maybe coming to Southside. But they decided to go ahead and start their own church. And they called themselves Third Baptist in Linwood, 
came out of that group. So that's how far back I go. It's been a while, and we're glad to be with you today. All right, Ruthie. Ruthie always reads my scripture and <laughs> prays for me before I preach. Um, John Marshall, to me, is not a man who does missions. He is missions. It is his heart. And he has been all over the world. Uh, and he hates travel. He absolutely hates it. So God has more or less pulled him screaming and planting his feet. Yeah. But he has gone anyway. And, um, but you know, the Lord was ahead and beside every step of the way. And we say we have seen heaven touch earth. Yes, we and have. that is so true. And the great missions revival at Second Baptist, <laughs> it was holy ground. Absolutely holy ground. Would you please stand for the reading of God's beautiful word? You know, I used to read from um, my iPad. I thought I looked real trendy and techy, uh, but I finally realized that a woman my age, that might not be the best thing to do. I did that one Sunday. I read the scripture, and I always pray after scripture. I read the scripture, and I pushed that little button at the bottom or somewhere, and I, I pushed it wrong, and, and this woman's voice said, you know, something like, what can I do to help you? <laughs> and I thought, oh, my, you know, it went right through the sound system. And I thought, oh, my goodness, God's a woman. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, that's a joke, okay? Except it really happened. It's a joke that really happened. <laughs> okay, I'm reading from the uh, New Living Translation this morning. Matthew, chapter 28, beginning with verse 18. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Would you pray with me, please? Father dear, how precious it is to stand in this place with your community, with believers who are here. Lord, we just want to praise you, to thank you, to bring you glory. We want to feel your smile. We want people to see your face as they look at us, to sense your presence in what we do and what we say and who we are. May we not fail you, precious one. Keep us on a right path with you, for we are known by your name. We could never be worthy to be your children. But, oh, precious, beautiful Savior, Holy Spirit, Heavenly Father, thank you. We will never forget, beautiful Savior, ever. We will never forget your sacrifice and your suffering on the cross. Thank you, thank you, thank you. In your holy name, 
I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dolly. Love you, baby. My text is verse 19, Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, which says, go. And that's as far as we'll get today. For the twelve, go became the manifesto governing their lives. These were men just like you. They had jobs, interests, families, and hobbies. But at Jesus' command, every concern in their lives yielded to the word go. And the directive is still the marching order for all believers, is the defining edict of our lives. We're not allowed the luxury of influencing only people who happen to come our way. To be an effective, successful Christian means that we have to leave our ruts, our daily habits, jobs, schools. We must leave our routines to find pre-Christians. We have to quit moving only in our regular ways of doing things. Our master said that lost sheep are scattered. Therefore, to find them, we have to scatter. Now, let me say it again. Our master said, lost sheep are scattered. Since that's true, you don't have to be a Rhodes Scholar to understand if we're going to reach lost people, we're going to have to scatter. Frederick Sampson, when he was young, decided he'd spend one summer working on a family farm. So when he went out there, slept in the barn hayloft, at 4 a.m., his dad woke him up, set him to tasks around the barn, he cleaned the stalls, he fed horses, he carried water. He finished four hours later, and he started climbing back up the ladder to his bed. And his dad said, where are you going? So I'm going back to bed. His dad said, Why? He said, well, I got my work done. His daddy walked up to him and said, now, son, I'm going to tell you something I don't ever want you to forget. What you do around the barn is chores. What you do in the fields is work. Now, we Baptists excel at chores. We do them very well. And our buildings that we have built where we are comfortable, our spiritual barns, we know how to take care of us. When I was at second every Monday morning, <clears throat> I had 26 staff members that got paid to take care of saved people. I had staff members, I had 26 pairs of eyes looking right here to make sure safe people were taken care of. I had ministers to the old people. I had them to the young. I had them to junior high. I had them to senior high. I had ministers to the babies of saved people. I had a whole room full of ministers who were clamoring for the rights of saved people. You don't have to worry about saved people getting what they need. They will let you know. The question is, who in our churches is assigned to speak for the lost. 
That's what Jesus is doing here. He's penetrating through 26 full-time ministers. He's penetrating through our need to get chores done. We have to do chores. We know that. But he's pushing through that, giving his own voice to the fact that as believers, in chores, we help each other. But because our master commanded us, we were always going, trying to reach unbelievers. To obey our master, we have to be going out into our local communities. We have to be seeking places, going to organizations, going to places where lost people live, where they move, and go out and try to engage them. To sit idly by and wait for lost people to come to us is a strange way to go. That's an odd notion of how to seek lost sheep. Back when I lived in Cape Girardeau, very few hunters sat in their kitchen and waited for a duck to fly through. Fishermen don't sit on their back porch and hope a fish will swim by. Farmers don't stand at the edge of the fence row and summon the crop to come in. My daddy was a cotton farmer. He was picking cotton before he could remember. He can never remember not picking cotton. Went off right at the end of the Second World War, became a Marine, came back, took one look at my mother, and in one week he picked 2,290 pounds of cotton. That's humanly impossible. He had not been doing it his whole life. He was a United States Marine. He couldn't have done it. He picked 2,290 pounds of cotton in one week, 512 pounds in one day to buy my mother a 21-jewel bull of a watch for $90.56 that she wore until she died. Now, Daddy did not stand inside the barn and say, Here, Cotton. This way, Cotton. Right over here. Daddy did not put a sign on the barn that said, All Cotton Welcome. He had to go out among the cotton stalks. And we, too, have to move. We have to overcome inertia and draw near sinners. The gospel is almost like a tangible thing. It has to be picked up, carried, and then delivered to people. Now, this word, go, brings us face-to-face with one of Southern Baptist's worst misinterpretations of Scripture. And we don't have very many. Our Baptist forebears were pretty good in their understanding of Scripture and their interpreting of the Word of God. We don't have very many errors in our historical narrative with regard to how, well, how we understood what the Bible was saying. But this word go ranks right up there at the top as one of our worst misinterpretations. Southern Baptists historically have tended to interpret the word go as go and stay. There are some of you in this room as Ruthie was reading the Great Commission just a few moments ago, once you, you realize she's reading the Great Commission, and she gets to the verse, go and make disciples, you basically clicked off. Because to you, you think that when Jesus said go, he meant go and stay, but that's not true. Very few of us in this room have the specific call to go and stay. Your mission partners, they are called to go and stay. They have a calling on their life. It's a special call to go and stay. 
all the rest of us in this room, we are called to go. Now, you can see how that that little misinterpretation equating go with go and stay can become a loophole to keep you from ever going on a short-term mission trip. So if you think Jesus is only talking about going and staying, you feel no guilt at all that you've never been on a mission trip. And yet the same Christ said to the same group, you go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost part of the earth. They're all ordered to go on trips, mission trips. That's what they're being told to do. He expects every believer, every one of you in this room, there's not an exception to that rule if you're a Christ follower. He expects every one of you to spend the rest of your life on mission in your city, your state, your nation, and your world, your Jerusalem, your Judea, your Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. Now, for me, I had to learn this fact after I'd become a megachurch pastor. I somehow grew up as a typical Southern Baptist, and, and I thought of the Great Commission as having been, been given to the International Mission Board, the North American Mission Board, the association, the local church, maybe a Sunday school class. I had to reprocess. I had to realize, wait just a minute. There was no convention there when Jesus told us to go. There was no international mission board. There was no North American mission board. There was no association. There was no church. There was no Sunday school class. In other words, Baptists decided over the years that we would create those organizations, organizations to help us fulfill the Great Commission. But somehow, after we created these groups to help us fulfill our commitment, we somehow started thinking the commission was given to them and we were meant to help them. We got it completely backwards. Every one of those organizations, a convention, an association, International Mission Board, North American Mission Board, a Sunday school class, local church, the Great Commission is not given to them. The command of Christ is to you. Each one of you in this room. And those organizations exist to help you fulfill God's call on your life. Every one of you in this room. Now for me, even though I was already a pastor, when I discovered the true meaning of go, it became for me the noble cause. For the first time in my life, I got it. I understood, but too few of our people ever catch it. The Missions Revival at Second was possibly the greatest professional event of my life. Many, many years, you already heard the story. It was wonderful, it was amazing, it was a God-touched miracle. And there's something that we learned in that revival that I want to share with you that will change your life forever if you'll listen to me. Now listen to me very closely. This is one thing. We never knew an exception to this rule in the Great Revival at Second. The life you've always dreamed of lies hidden in the mission you've always dreaded.
The very thing that you've always said you would never do right there is your destiny. Never known an exception to that. For me, it was go to China. I was almost swore on the altar I would never do that. And it was right there. Revival came to me. Now, this is a biblical concept. This is not something I made up out of whole cloth. You can see it in the Bible. Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus Road getting ready to persecute the Christians. All Paul, all he, all he ever wanted to do was please God. But yet the life he wanted to live, he wanted to please God. The life he wanted to live of being pleasing to God was hidden in the mission he dreaded. If you'd asked him when he left Jerusalem going to Damascus, what's the last thing in the world you'll ever become? He would say, the last thing I'll ever do is become a Christian. That's the last thing I'll ever do. See, the life he dreamed of was hidden in the mission he dreaded. Simon Peter, he really struggled with his prejudice. And before that sheet full of unclean animals came down out of heaven, the last thing Simon Peter would have ever done was, first of all, come to your house. He would have never come to your house because you were a Gentile. And he would have never eaten a ham sandwich with you, ever. But yet he wanted to be pleasing to God. He wanted to do what God wanted to do. The life he was dreaming of was hidden in the mission he dreaded. Now, why is that? Why is it that, that I stand before you as a pastor who has sent hundreds and hundreds of people on mission? And why can I stand here before you and say to you, I never knew an exception to this rule? I would ask you, why would you be surprised at that? Satan has known you since you were born. He has watched you. He knows your personality. He knows your likes. He knows your dislikes. Satan knows all about every mission agency in the world, about every organization. He knows about them. He knows the exact type of personality that would fit perfectly at that job. He knows exactly the kind of person that was born and created to do this. So he will make sure, if you have the traits to do this, he'll make sure through all of your lifetime that you keep hearing bad things about this thing that you were created to do. Now, I know, I'm smart enough to know that you're not going to run out the door and tomorrow go do the thing that you always said you would never do. Some of you would never go to a pregnancy care center. Some of you would never go to China. Some of you would never work with a rescue mission for men. Some of you, you've got this, that something, that thing that you just would never do. And I, I, I'm smart enough to know that one sermon is not going to change you forever, that you're going to run out the door and go do what you hate to do. But I also feel I have enough authority here that your church, your church, decided to have a missions conference weekend and ask me to come and preach. And so I would not expect you to open a door and run through it, but I would expect you, because you're a member of this church, I would expect you to at least open a window and begin to ponder, Lord, did that old preacher... Maybe, was he maybe right? Is it possible, Lord, that the one thing I've said I would never do is where my destiny, before I was even born, was pointed? 
If you're going to be successful for God, and that's all that matters in the world, if you're going to please God, you've got to get past those self-created hurdles, these self-generated negatives. You've got to get over the thing that you said you would not do. You've got to pass those barriers. You have to become heroic. It's one of the hardest things you'll ever do. When I went to China, it almost killed me. I hated it. I hated every minute of it. But it was there that the revival began. In my heart, on a trip to China, doing the thing I hated more than anything else in the world to do. And that's where you have to be. You have to come to the point that you are so yielded to the Holy Spirit that it takes a miracle, an absolute miracle for you to overcome your own fear. Just because you're afraid doesn't give you the right not to do it. Just because you don't like it doesn't give you the opportunity to avoid your duty. And it is the Holy Spirit within us with all these self-created hurdles and barriers, it is the Holy Spirit in us who is always saying, go, go. The same Holy Spirit that inspired this passage that my wife read, that same Holy Spirit is in you, saying, go, go. Now, for some of us, he's been pushed down so long, you can barely hear him. But I promise you, you will never be satisfied spiritually until you obey the command of your master and you obey the voice that's calling to you from inside. Twenty-five years ago when the revival began at Second, we knew that we had to have a successful world missions conference. We knew we had to blow it out. We, if God was going to do a work among us, we had to do a remarkable conference. So our staff, we got together and we said, who are we going to put in charge of this world missions conference? We were unanimous. There was one man in our church everybody loved, everybody respected. I mean, this was the man in our church. A layman, everybody knew. I mean, this was the guy. So we called him and we asked him, would you take charge of our first World Missions Conference? He came to my administrative pastor's office one day and he said, no, had too much on his plate. He couldn't take it over. But then as he left our church, driving down the road, he recalled an event from when he was 10 years old. His mother took him to a WMU meeting where a foreign missionary spoke. As a 10-year-old boy, he was so moved by the foreign missionary that when the foreign missionary finished, he ran out the front door and ran into the woods and fell down at the foot of a tree and began to weep, pouring his heart out to God for the lost people of the world. Now, fast forward to the day that he left my administrative pastor's office. He's driving down the road, having said no to us, and he said, it seemed as if God landed on his shoulder and said, Milton, what happened to the boy under the tree? It hit him so hard he began to convulse. He was weeping so uncontrollably. He had to, quickly as he could, find a parking place. And while he was still weeping, pondering that, 
Got on his car phone. He called us and said he changed his mind. He would gladly lead our first World Missions Conference. Now, there are many of you in this room who could tell the same story. So I've come to ask you, what happened to the soft-hearted person that used to live in your skin? You remember your chin quivered at one time for somebody who was lost? Do you remember it? You remember a tear in the corner of your eye? You remember sadness over lost people going to burning hell? What happened to that soft-hearted person that used to live in your skin? I'm 71 years old. Therefore, I'm old enough to remember when Southern Baptists were sad rather than mad at lost people for acting like lost people. If you're younger than about 45 or so, you've seen my denomination on a temper tantrum, mad at lost people for acting like lost people. We're considered the cultural hitmen of our society. What happened to us? I remember when I was down at Southside Baptist Church, I was a boy growing up. Daddy made me come to church on Wednesday night. Don't feel sorry for me. My sister was stone deaf, and he made her come too. And we didn't have interpreters back then. So she and I would sit on the back row on Wednesday nights. I cannot remember one word that was ever spoken at any of those Wednesday night services. But let me tell you what I do remember as a little boy. I remember at the end of the service, Daddy would always say, Now, let's come, and we're going to pray for our lost family and our lost friends and then maybe, maybe 20, I don't know, 20, 25 people, a small church, they'd come forward. And it's about like this. Maybe there's two steps. That's about right. It looks about right. About like this. And they'd go across here and they would start to pray. This little mumbling would start. You could hear this. Growing. And then the intensity would grow. And then somebody over here would say, oh, pray for my daughter. She's lost. And this wail, this, Oh, we'd go across the room. Scared me to death. But I remember, I remember, I remember. And then somebody over here would say, pray for my wife. She's lost. She's lost. Oh, that wave would go back and forth across that room as they would cry out, pleading for somebody to pray for their lost loved ones. What happened to us? Do you think God needs policemen to be mad at lost people? They're going to hell, folks. It's going to burn forever. God doesn't need any angry folks. God needs some people who weep, who shed a tear, who let a chin quiver, who care. Because people are lost. And the way you care is you get out of your rut and you go. You find agencies in your city. They're in the middle of lostness. And you go to them and you volunteer and you work there. You go on mission trips to your state, to your Missouri. You go on mission trips to the United States of America. You go on a mission trip internationally because our master commanded us, not the conventions, not the association, not your church. He commanded each one of us in this room to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, 
I was pastor of a church when all of this began caving in on me. I was pastor of a great church. We led the Missouri Baptists in gifts to the Quattro program every year I was there. I mean, we gave lots of money to missions. We did lots of stuff. You heard Mark talk about that. We did lots of things. And in those first days there, I thought, well, if we're giving, you know, we're, we're praying, we're doing Lottie and Annie, I felt that was enough. If I was promoting and pushing, it was enough. But I can tell you, I can tell you the event that caused me to understand I was living in sin. I was reading the scriptures. I was reading the gospels. It began to dawn on me that if I wanted to be like Jesus, and everyone was in this room, we want to be like Jesus. All of you want to be like Jesus. It dawned on me that Jesus spent his whole public ministry living in Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee. He spent his whole adult ministry going on short-term mission trips. I'd always said, I want to be like Jesus. And here I am, a pastor of a big church, and I had never followed this example. If you don't like going on short-term mission trips, don't ever read Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John again. It run, I've ruined it for you. It's incredible. Once it dawns on you, Jesus was always going on short-term mission trips. Once that comes to you and you claim you want to be like Jesus, you understand that really, as a Christ follower, you have two choices. You either go and stay. You're called to be a full-time missionary, called to be a pastor, called to full-time vocational work. You either go and stay. But if you're not called to go and stay, then you're called to spend the rest of your life to go. God had only one son. Only one, only begotten son. And when God looked down at lost people, he sent his son. First of all, he sent his son to go and stay. He was an international missionary. He left heaven and he came and he lived on earth. But then once he landed, he kept some men around him. They wanted to teach them that for the rest of their lives, they must always be going. So he came to go and stay, but then while he was here, he kept going so that we would understand what he meant when he commanded us to go. Our master came to go. Can we do any less? Jesus emptied himself. The Bible says in that great kenosis passage of Philippians 2, the Bible says the second person of the Trinity emptied himself and he left his heavenly home to come to earth. Don't you think maybe you could fill a suitcase? And leave your home just for a few days to go do something? As long as people are in darkness, we've got to go carry the light to them. We must go carry the living water to people. In those early days of the Great Missions Revival, I decided I wanted to preach at the missions conference on the, taking living water to people so that people could have the life of Jesus in them. And so I wanted to get an antique uh, fire bucket, a water bucket from the antique fire brigade. And I had a man in my church who was a retired fireman. And uh, so I asked him, I said, uh, uh, could you find me an antique water bucket, you know, I, I just want to use it as a you know, sermon prop. He said, sure, no problem. So 
mission, the missions conference came. I stepped out of my office that first night, and Herschel Jordan from the other side of the office says, Pastor, Pastor! I looked over, and here comes Herschel carrying the strangest thing I ever saw in my life. He was carrying a bucket that's bottom was as round as a basketball. And I took it from him, and I got my little stand I was going to set it on, and I put it on there, and went right straight to the ground. So I'm, I've been over and I got it, and I thought, if, maybe if I put a little dent in the bottom of it, it'll stay up there. So I pushed down a little bit, and went to the ground. So I thought, well, maybe one more time, one more time. So I got up, and I pushed. Third time, I got it. See, I do have an earned doctorate. <laughs> do you know why the bottom of a fire brigade water bucket is round? Because when there's a fire going on, you don't put your water bucket get down and folks there's an everlasting fire going on and your friends and your neighbors and your families are going there so fast and they're going to go there forever and you and I have been given the living water the living water that they can live that they can touch them and so you take your bucket and you Pull up, you pray, oh, you pray with all your might, you pray, you pray, you pray, you pray for God's anointing. But then, you not only pray, then you pass the bucket down the line by giving your offering. You pass the bucket, and the water of life goes down to the end, and somebody pours it out. But then, as you're dipping the living water, there's not enough missionaries to get it done. There's just not enough missionaries. There's not enough pastors. So you yourself, occasionally, you got to go to the end of the line and throw it yourself. You have to go to one of your agencies in Cape Girardeau where people are lost. You have to go. We had 18 of them in Springfield, second. Many of that thousand people every year that went on mission were to those 18 agencies in Springfield. Jesus not only used Capernaum as his home base for missions. Do you remember what he did in Capernaum one time? He healed everybody in town. So we set together a group and we picked 18 agencies that we felt touched every hurt in the city of Springfield. We partnered with all 18 of them. You have to go. You've got to find the lost people. You've got to find the hurt. You've got to go. But then every one of you in this room... You need to be on mission somewhere in Missouri. And to each of you in this room, you need to be on a mission trip going to the United States somewhere. Every one of you in this room, Jesus called you to go to the uttermost. Not everyone in the room is called to go and stay. Those people are in the fellowship hall, and you'll go over there and visit with them in just a few minutes. Not all of you are called to go and stay. But all of you are called to go. Jerusalem, 
Judea, Samaria, uttermost part of the earth. Cape Girardeau, Missouri, United States, the rest of the world. Pastor, come. Would you bow your head and close your eyes for just a moment? The message has been very clear. Jesus is the one who spoke it through our messenger today. One word, go. No doubt there's someone here today who would say, Pastor, I'm, I'm on the other end of that bucket. I'm, I'm on the receiving end of that living water. And I want to have a relationship with God. I want to know him. I want my sin forgiven. I want to experience real life. And that means that you're willing to turn from your sin, turn from your way of life, and turning to Christ alone for your salvation. Knowing that he died on the cross to take care of your sin problem, which you could not take, of, take care of yourself. So when we sing this next song, I'm going to invite you to come to one of the pastors, and they'll be able to help you give your heart to Christ. But most of us in this room know the Lord, and we do love the Lord. But we're not going. And we have the opportunity to do so through many ministry opportunities through our church and so maybe what God is asking you to do today is to open the window to peer into that thing that opportunity that thing you said you would never do to see Lord all right is this is this really where the fulfilling life lies And you can do that by going in the fellowship hall in just a few moments. Begin a conversation and find out, get information. Some of you already know exactly what you should do, where you should go. A place, a person where you can minister, where you can serve. And so it's a moment to say, yes, Lord. Others, God is leading you to become part of our church family, to be a part of a church that this is the heartbeat of who we are. It's this great commission that Christ gave to his followers. Not just then, but today. And so we would love for you to be a part of what the Lord is doing through this local body of believers. You can come. Maybe God's calling some of you out to go and stay to give your life vocationally to going somewhere to serve the Lord. There are others that you just need a quiet moment before the Lord at the altar. He's, he's working, he's stirring it up in your heart. That's the spirit, it's not the enemy doing that. That's the Lord. Some of you have a burden on your heart 
for you or for someone else, you come and we'll pray for you. Father, thank you for the clarity of the spoken word today. A word that is alive, that penetrates us, that deals with the core issues of our lives so that we can truly experience you. Help these who need to make commitments now in Jesus' name. Amen.